Well, good evening. My name is James Green. I'm the teaching pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. I want to commend and congratulate every one of you for coming to church ahead of the ice apocalypse that is coming. Made a wise, wise choice. Actually, we're glad you're here because we get this chance to worship together and hang out and learn. And the idea would be that things that we're going to learn, we're going to go out and impact the world with. So it isn't just about coming to be together, but it is such a wonderful thing to be together. So thank you for being here. If you have your Bibles or you have a Bible app or however you want to get there, join me in the first chapter of Galatians. We're going to finish out the first chapter of Galatians tonight. Your bulletin actually has an outline if you have that, and we covered the first part last week. So if you missed that, you can go back on our website, www.capebiblechapel.org. You can listen to past sermons on there. We've got a lot of information. We'd love you to be familiar with our website. But our time tonight, we're going to work through the rest of chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 15. And what we're looking at is the Apostle Paul's testimony. We looked at the first third of it last week, but now we're going to look at the best parts. We're going to look at the part where Paul meets Jesus, and then we're going to look at how his life changes after that event on Damascus Road. Paul seems to spend a lot of time here early in this book. He's defending his personal life. He's defending his theology. And the reason he's doing that, we said, is because he's linking those things together with how he received the gospel message and how he got this call on his life, his call to ministry. All those things came directly from Jesus. We also said last week sharing our testimony is a really valuable thing to focus on because it's such an important tool that we can use when people ask, well, why do we believe what we believe? If you're a big researcher or a studier and you love to read some really thick books, you can do a lot of apologetic work. That's fantastic. If you'd want to do a neat study, you could do a study on how fulfilled prophecy alone really points to the Bible being authentic. And and that's great. The Bible stands up well to criticism. If you want to do that kind of stuff, jump in and do it. But we also said last week, you don't have to be able to prove certain things to explain why you've placed your faith in Jesus. You can just share your story with people. Because if you're a Christ follower, then you have a story that goes, I was like this, but then something happened. I met Jesus, and now I'm like this because of that something in the middle. Radical life change doesn't happen without some kind of change agent in the middle. I've needed to lose weight all my life, and I've lost and gained more weight than Jared from Subway. And never once in my life have I just lost weight without some kind of change agent. If I changed my diet or I changed my exercise, well, then I'd lose weight. If I'd get a disease or I ate a tapeworm, something like that. But never once have pounds just miraculously fallen off of me. That would be a miracle. I've prayed for that miracle. It's never happened. (laughs) But the kind of life change we see in people like Paul, where he was a violent persecutor to the church, and then something happened, and then all of a sudden he's planting churches, well, that doesn't happen without that something there in the middle. I was thinking about that this week. And I remembered back a long time ago, back in 2002, I was watching a debate. And there were a lot of debates right about then. And I think a lot of it had to do with the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But it seemed like, if you remember back then, there were a lot of people debating atheism versus Christianity. And so a lot of folks going around the country debating these two worldviews. And I remember seeing one, and it was a simulcast of one of the bigger ones that had happened at the time. And there was this really intelligent guy named Michael Newdow who was arguing the atheistic viewpoint. He's a proclaimed atheist. Now, maybe that name is familiar to you. Newdow has gotten a lot of press. He's the guy who has repeatedly attempted to try to have any reference to God removed from the Pledge of Allegiance. He's also the guy that spearheaded the effort to have In God We Trust removed from all American currency. And in 2008, he filed a lawsuit against the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court 
to prevent him from saying the words in God, or so help me God, at the end of President Obama's first inauguration. So this guy stays busy. And I'm sure he is brilliant. I would not want to debate him on anything except the topic of atheism versus Christianity. Maybe sports trivia, because I'm pretty solid there. But I think he just wiped the floor with me. He is both a practicing lawyer and a practicing medical doctor. Those are pretty tough fields. But the first I heard of this guy, Michael Newdow, is when he participated in what was supposed to be just one of the biggest of these debates. And I watched the debate, and I came away thinking, this is kind of ridiculous. Now, I'd never heard of the pastor who argued the Christ-following side before. There's a pastor named Cliff Neckley, pastor of Grace Community Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. And I thought he did a really nice job. But it was probably hard for me to be objective. But, but he seemed to present a really solid case. And then Michael Newdow steps up, and he presented what was supposed to be the atheist argument. And I thought he just really laid an egg. But because he had heard about all the debate format and the rules and the way that it was going to play out months in advance, and then he stands up to make his opening argument, and he basically said, well, all those rules we agreed to, they don't apply to me. Because Pastor Neckley, he's going to have to prove God exists. He says, I'm arguing that God doesn't exist, so I really don't need to prove anything. Which I thought was really lame at the time. And I was young, and I was shaking my fist at the screen, you know, such a rebel. But I thought that was just kind of silly, you know. And then he made his second big point. He only had two points. And his first was, well, the burden of proof has to be on Christ's followers because they say God exists. And his second point was, well, we can just settle this right now. If God is real, I'll just tell him to come down here and he'll show up on the stage right now. He could just settle this debate. And then he stood and he said, okay, God, come on down. Now this guy, again, I guarantee, he could run circles around me in the academic decathlon. But here's where I feel like he let his side down. Because if you're going to be in a debate like that, at least have a clue what the other side is arguing about. At least have an idea of what the Bible says. And he went in blind. If we look at Matthew chapter 12 and verses 38 to 40 real quickly, let me set the context on this. This is Jesus speaking, and he had just performed a miracle. He displayed his divine nature. He healed a guy who was mute and blind and demon-possessed, and he did it in front of a bunch of folks. And here's what the text says. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, and these were the people who witnessed this miracle, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered, and he said, An evil an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus is talking about Christ's death and burial and resurrection. But what he says is, oh, you guys want to see a sign? Like the one I just did where I healed this guy? That's what you want to see? When, when Jesus did that, the scribes and the Pharisees accused him of playing on Satan's team. Folks who say they want to see a sign, they may not really want to see a sign. I don't know what, you know, if God himself had shown up on that stage at that debate, I'm just positive Newdow would have said, well, that's a special effects trick. Or, I'm hallucinating from all this preparation I've put in by not reading the Bible before the debate. You know, something like that. I think the debate was sort of a flop, if you ask me. But that debate format continued for several months after that. And it wasn't always Newdow. There, there was some other person who would be the spokesperson for atheism. And they'd debate some pastor or Bible scholar. And then, I remember, it was odd, because the debates just sort of stopped happening. Now, there could be a couple reasons for this. One of them is 
I think we have the attention span of goldfish sometime. <laughs> After the events of 9-11, church attendance increased across the United States by 25% for a period of between three to four weeks. After that, it just dropped back down to where it normally sits. About 48% of Americans saying they attend church regularly, which is a number I would dispute anyway. But I remember at the time reading another story that paints a different picture of why these debates stopped. Now, sadly, I can't remember who the debaters were who were going to be in this debate, but I remember it was going to be a big debate, and it was going to be in a big city on the East Coast. And as the participants were going over the debate format, the guy who was going to debate for the Christ-following side said, here's what I want to do. I'll debate this other guy, the atheist guy, anytime, any place, anywhere, any format, really doesn't matter. The thing is, you'd have to allow us each to bring one person with us who would speak with us at the debate. And so the person who was going to argue for the non-existence of God said, oh, sure, you want to go find somebody who's written a commentary or something like that, don't you? And the Christ follower said, no, here's what I want to do. I want you and I both to go a day early to this town where we're going to have the debate. And I want us to go walk around the downtown area, and we're going to find a person to stand on the stage with us. I'm going to go find a person who has had a lot of baggage. they, They had a former way of life. And then they had a but Jesus moment. They met Jesus. And now they live this radically changed life because of that. They have a relationship with God that's by grace through faith in Jesus, and their whole life has changed. Now they have hope. Now they see meaning in life. Now they know there's final justice. Now they understand the promise of eternity with God. He says, that's the person I'm going to find. And I want you to go downtown and find somebody with the same kind of story. Somebody who's carried a lot of baggage, and now they live a radically different life. Their life looks totally different because they realize there is no God. This is as good as it gets. This is all we're ever going to have. You find a person like that and bring them. And there was no debate. (laughs) The debates never happened. I never heard of another one of them happening. And you know why? Because nobody tells that story, do they? This is why sharing our testimony clearly is so important. When we have stories as Christ followers of changed lives, that indicates there was a change agent When we share our testimony, we can clearly point to Jesus being the reason for our life change. Jesus is the answer. Well, that's what Paul does here in Galatians 1. If we start in verse 15 of chapter 1, he's going to explain his his but-then-Jesus moment. He says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. This is Paul's but then Jesus moment. He says God did three things for him. He says first, God set him apart from birth, from back when he was Saul of Tarsus. So this indicates every part of his life was just preparation for him to do ministry. Now that's a hard one to wrestle with because Paul's already indicated he was a bad guy. I mean, this is difficult to grasp, but this means even when things are going bad, God is always in control. He's aware of what we're doing when we're running away from him, when we're shaking our fist at him, when we're questioning what he's up to, and he's just patiently waiting for that day when we'll have a but-then-Jesus moment. So this takes away our ability to sit back and say, well, God doesn't know all the horrible stuff I've done. Yes, he does. And he didn't destroy you yet. He hadn't destroyed Saul at this point in time, so he must have a plan for us. And for Saul, it was going to be, he was going to become Paul. And proclaim this work of grace. 
Second, it does say God called Paul by grace. Paul is so amazed by the grace that he received, he mentions it over and over again. He mentions it here. Grace is what he's preaching to the Galatians. And then third, I love this, it says God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul and then through Paul. Now this warrants some special attention because if we're Christ followers, this is a neat thing in Scripture. These are the kind of things we look for. We want to know what are the things that please God. If we read our Bible and we see something that pleases God, we want to underline it and say, okay, I'm going to go out and do that, right? Well, here it says it brings God pleasure to reveal Jesus to Paul. So that's a neat one to ponder on. That Damascus Road event where the resurrected Jesus appears to Paul, that brought pleasure to God. So God had just patiently endured all that stuff that Saul had been doing, the horrible stuff, because he knew he had a plan. I guarantee the first century Christians weren't as excited about the path that Saul was on. I think they were sitting around and praying for God to send something for Saul, but it wasn't Jesus. They, they wanted lightning to strike him. They wanted Saul to be eaten by a lion or something like that. But God had this other plan. He was going to show up in Paul's life. So that's neat for us to think about. Can we begin to grasp that it brings God pleasure every time somebody tells their testimony? Every time somebody takes him up on that offer to have a former way of life, that's party in heaven time for God. And then Paul says the reason God did all that was so that Paul could preach to the Gentiles. And that is a little bit of a head-scratcher. Because just based on logic and reason, this idea from God doesn't make a lot of sense. God's going to use Paul in a way that Paul certainly couldn't have even imagined, but it seems to defy common sense. Because Paul had been Saul. And Saul was a guy who was zealous for the Jewish law. They'd had a reality show back then, Next Top Pharisee, Saul was going to win. He was the guy. He knew all the feasts and the festivals. He knew the dietary laws. He had the Torah memorized. He'd been schooled by a top rabbi. If God was going to send Saul anywhere to be a missionary, to plant churches, it'd be to the Jews, right? I mean, Saul's resume was a perfect match to send him straight to Jerusalem. But God says, no, no. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you to these pagan people that you really don't understand and haven't spent any time with. Now, why would he do that? It's neat for me to think about this in the context of the church because I'm really blessed. A lot of times, you guys will come to me. Somebody will come to me, and they'll say, hey, I want to serve in the church. Where's a good place where I could serve? I really want to get connected. And so I'll ask some questions. You know, it's not that hard. Hey, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? You know, what are the things that you like to do that really make you come alive? What, what do you enjoy doing? And if we ask just a couple questions, we can find a pretty good place for you to serve, I think. I mean, if you like kids, we say, hey, go serve in children's ministry. They always need help back there. If you like the Dewey Decimal System, we could help in the library, that, that kind of thing. But every now and again, I get a situation where somebody comes in and they say, hey, I'd like to serve in that area, but I don't really think I'm gifted in that area. I don't really have any, you know, I'm scared of kids. I don't have any gifts there, but I'd really like to go serve there because I'm not comfortable. They want to serve outside of the way that God has gifted them and wired them because when they do, what happens? God gets all the glory. Throughout our life, if we only do stuff that comes easily to us, if we just do the stuff that comes very naturally, we can do that on cruise control. And we'll forget to thank God for wiring us the way that he has. But if we go serve in an area, or if we become a missionary in an area where we're outside of our comfort zone, well, that'll really make you grow and your dependence on God. I think maybe that's God's idea here with Paul. No, you already know all the Jewish stuff, Paul. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. That way your entire message is just going to be grace. 
So that's Paul's but-then-Jesus moment. He receives grace. He gets his calling. And now jump back into the text. The rest of this chapter, we're going to see how Paul's life changes because of this. Starting in the middle of verse 16, Paul says, After I met Jesus, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Here's what I did. I went away to Arabia, and then I returned once more to Damascus. So this is Paul going back to his defense. He says, I didn't receive the message of God's grace from anybody else. And I think, again, this is probably to counter the folks who've been saying, hey, Paul, that message you're preaching, it sounds just like what I hear Christ's disciples preaching. It's what the other apostles are preaching, so surely you learned it from them. And they might be saying, hey, you keep talking about Jesus and grace, that's probably just a man-made religion, right? And people today still struggle with that. If you know people and they read the Bible and they struggle with it and they think, oh, it's weird, it's made up, I'd tell you, tell them to read it. Read it and say, if somebody was making that up, would they include all the things in there that they do? Because the Bible authors tell on themselves all over the place. If you look at the storyline of the Old Testament, the Israelites are the key figures. They're God's chosen people. If they had made that story up, don't you think they'd portray themselves as a little more noble, a little more upright folks than how they come across in the Bible? You read the Old Testament, they are sinful, fickle, selfish people. Time and time again, they're miraculously rescued by God, and then they turn right around and abandon the God who rescued them. Look at the family line of Jesus, our Messiah. It includes David. Now, David's a man after God's own heart, I'll give you that. But read the Bible, he also happens to be an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. Jesus' family line includes Solomon. Solomon had a real polygamy problem. It also includes a non-Hebrew, a prostitute named Rahab. Is that the kind of family tree you'd make up for Jesus if you were writing the Bible on your own? doesn't get a lot better in the New Testament. Jesus calls Peter, his closest friend, the leader of the disciples, calls him Satan at one point in time. Christ's three closest friends fall asleep on him when he needs them the most. And if you really want to look at something that's damaging, I think the most damaging inclusion in the Bible, if you're saying somebody made this up, is in the resurrection account. Because the first eyewitnesses were women. Now, in context, back then, when it would have been written, women's testimonies weren't even valid in a court of law. Nobody is making this story up. When I talk about myself, I like to paint myself in a really favorable light. I think that's what we do because of selfishness. If I was going to make up a religion, if I wrote the Bible, I'd have something where your spiritual maturity was directly tied to how much you eat. The more you eat, the holier you get. That would be my religion. We'd take communion with peanut butter and Diet Coke. I guarantee it. I, I know me. That's what it would sound like if I'd made it up. I'd be a superhero in that religion. Paul's saying, I didn't get this message from the other apostles. And he further says, hey, if I was uncertain about this gospel of grace, well, I could have gone and hung out with the apostles. He could have gone to a conference or a seminar down in Jerusalem, but he didn't do that. Instead, what he did is he went to Arabia to be by himself with the Lord. I think that's a brief but important aside. We'll just ask this. Do we schedule time like that for ourselves today? This seemed really important to Paul. You read the Gospels, this seems really important to Jesus. He was there, he's hanging out doing ministry. All of a sudden he'd take off, go out, be in the wilderness alone with God. That seems really important. So as Paul went and he spent time meditating on God's Word, which he'd already memorized, because he was seeking further revelation from God, I believe. 
Paul didn't form his theology like we do. We'll study and we'll read and we'll hear sermons, and then we'll go bounce our ideas off of people we trust. That's kind of how we develop it. Paul didn't do that. He went out and sought God's guidance. That's where Paul got his message. He continues on about how his life has changed since he met Jesus, starting in verse 18. He says, this, Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. That's Peter. I stayed with him 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Now, he starts out by saying that this excursion to Arabia and then back to Damascus took him three years. Now, I'd made the contention early on when we started the series, I believe the letter to the Galatians was the first epistle that Paul authored, somewhere around 48 or 49 A.D. I'm not going to sit up here and try and present a timeline from Christ's death and burial and resurrection to Paul's conversion through his missionary journeys. I think that would be really valuable. I think as you're studying and reading, that would be a good thing to have next to you. It's good for context. I am going to suggest, as we study Galatians, during the week, go back and read through the book of Acts. Because then you'll see how these events Paul talks about unfold. Paul only mentions two Jerusalem visits in Galatians. The first one's here in verse 18. And the next week in chapter 2 in verse 1, he mentions one. But if you read through Acts, Luke records five visits from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from Paul. And the first is in Acts chapter 9 and verse 26. We looked at that a couple weeks ago where the disciples didn't trust Paul. That's where Paul first encounters some disciples of Christ. And that one corresponds with this verse in Galatians 1.18. Then in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, that corresponds to the text we're going to look at next week. And then there's the Jerusalem council visit in Acts 15, and then two later visits, one in Acts chapter 18.22 and one in Acts chapter 21, verse 15. Now the tricky thing about the chronological time that would have passed between these events is that three years can mean different things. 2012 was three years ago, right? You just count and do the math. 2014 now, 2013, 2012. But if I asked you this, do you remember when the Sandy Hook Elementary School tragedy happened? A tragic school shooting? Would you say that was three years ago? Because it seems much more current than that, doesn't it? That tragedy actually occurred around 16 months ago, in December of 2012. So which is accurate? Did that happen almost 16 months ago or did it happen three years ago? Well, they're both accurate. But now you can see the problem in trying to keep a timeline. Could Paul have actually been in Arabia for 14 months and called it three years? Well, sure, if it was the last month of a calendar year and then all the next calendar year and the first month and the other, and he'd still be accurate. I don't want to get too hung up on this timeline because the early date for writing Galatians still works if you put it on a timeline from Paul's Damascus Road experience. So Paul mentions after this period of time, I did then go up to Jerusalem. And he met Peter, and he hung out with him for 15 days. Now, I'm reading this into this. I don't know. But I tend to think that he would have liked to have hung out with Peter a little bit longer, but there were a bunch of folks who were trying to kill him. So he cut out a little early. If you go back and read in Acts chapter 9, we already see that Paul had to be snuck out of Damascus. He was lowered over the wall in a basket. So somebody's got a hit out on Paul. There's a contract out on his life. When you have a hit on you, you'll normally change your travel plans. When we read about this passage, we now have some more context to think about. Because we talked before about how hard it was for Paul to go and visit Jesus' disciples because they didn't trust him. He was the murderous Saul. They didn't want to believe him. Well, now it says he finally shows up in Damascus and he's sharing the gospel. He's had this incredible life change, but it says people are wanting to kill him. Well, who are these people? It's the religious people. 
It's the folks who were expecting him to be the next top Pharisee. So naturally, when he shows up and he's preaching the gospel, they're really upset. So now they're going to try and kill him. This is soap opera type stuff for Paul. So Paul hangs out with Peter for a little bit, and he mentions that the only other apostle he met was James, the Lord's brother. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's a pretty big deal. And this is incredible to me because I think this, again, is supporting evidence for the authenticity of the Bible. Because I believe James was most likely not a Christ follower while Jesus was alive. Can you imagine how hard it would be to convince your own brother you were God? What extreme amount of evidence would you need to have your brother come to worship you as God? I mean, I think you'd almost have to die and be resurrected and, oh wait. So Paul says, I didn't get this message I'm sharing from the other apostles. As a matter of fact, I really only hung out with two of them. Now, why is this a big deal? Why does he even mention this? It's because the word of the gospel of grace was getting around. And this message that Paul was preaching was the same message they were preaching. And so these people are coming to Paul, and they're saying, hey, you must have just learned this from those other apostles. Paul's audience would have heard it. And from a common sense perspective, that makes more sense than saying, hey, you heard this message directly from God. You ever heard of a coaching tree? You know what that is? If you follow a a sport, you can look at a guy who's a head coach, and then you can see, okay, does he have assistant coaches? Did they go on to become head coaches? And then those guys, they have assistant coaches. Do they go on? It It looks like a discipling tree when you get done. Well, back in 2012, just three years ago, or 16 months ago, whichever you prefer, in the National Football League, all 32 of the different head coaches could be traced back to the coaching tree of just three guys, Bill Parcells, Bill Walsh, and Marty Schottenheimer. Now, if somebody would observe any of those guys coaching, they'd say, well, that guy coaches just like Parcells. Man, that guy acts just like Bill Walsh. And you'd say, well, sure, because those are the guys they learn from. Well, this is what the Galatians are saying about Paul. You're preaching this message of grace. It's the same thing that we heard the other apostles are preaching. So therefore, you must have gotten it from them. And that's why Paul makes this a big deal. He says, no, I got it from Jesus. And then he says something really incredible in verse 20. He says, and I promise you, I'm not lying. Now, that would be a really funny phrase to throw in there if he wasn't addressing the fact that they're saying, hey, Paul, you're lying. So Paul addresses this accusation of lying, and it's important to the Galatians. And I think it's important to us because we're here today. We're gathered in church, and we're all reading from this accepted collection of God's inspired word written for us. And Paul wrote about half of the New Testament. We're focusing just here in Galatians. But if Jesus didn't appear to Paul, and then Paul didn't put his faith in Jesus, and then Jesus didn't disciple Paul, and then breathe these words into him, then today we don't have a big portion of God's love letter. So the fact that Paul's not lying is applicable today. And it's so important Paul puts himself under oath. He says, I'm not lying about any of this. And he's so serious about the oath that he calls God as his witness. Then he gets back to giving some more detail about what's happened in his life after he met Jesus. In verse 21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, which tells us the word is spreading all over. They kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. So now Paul started doing some ministry. And for his own safety, he's been kind of sent away. Acts chapter 9, verse 30 says where Paul went. And he stayed there for a while doing ministry. 
Because in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, it says when folks went to go look for him, this is where he was. He was down in Syria and Cilicia. And these were the two regions kind of just to the west and the southeast of Tarsus where he was from. That's where Paul was hanging out. And he's got this amazing testimony. And so word is spreading. And people are hearing, hey, the guy who used to persecute Christ followers, he's now preaching. You need to put your faith in Jesus. Well, why was that story spreading? Because that's a great story. We love to hear those kind of radical life change stories because they point to something. This one points to someone who must have been responsible for the change. My two oldest boys had the chance to go and hear a guy named Brian Welch give his testimony a few weeks ago. Now, Welch was not a guy I was familiar with, so as a dad, I did a little bit of research on him. He's a musician. He was the lead guitarist and co-founder of the heavy metal group Korn. Any Korn fans out there? I'm a Ryan Korn fan. Brian Welch has this phenomenal, this, this new life in Christ story. This guy who is far, far away from the Lord's story. In 2005, he quit this band that he founded, and he made this bold announcement. He said, I've chosen the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I'll be dedicating my musical pursuits to that end. And he did. His life began to look different. He began writing and recording, and he released his own solo album in 2008. If you're not familiar with him, you don't know what the title was, but it's incredible. The title of it is, Save Me From Myself. What an awesome picture of the understanding of total depravity. What an awesome picture of life change in this guy. Well, Brian Welch has now since rejoined the group Corn, but he's doing it as a missionary. He's trying to witness to these guys. And he gave just a snippet of his testimony in an interview, and I want to share it because it's wonderful. Here's how he tells it. He says, I was walking along one day, just doing my rock and roll thing, making millions of bucks, you know, success and everything, addicted to drugs, and then the next day, Christ revealed himself to me. we stop and think about that, how it pleased God to reveal himself to Brian Welch? And so on that day, Brian Welch had his but-then-Jesus moment. And now he has these musical gifts, and he uses them for God's glory. You don't hear stories of life change like that from folks who haven't met Jesus. We love those kind of stories. I know we do. If at some point in time in history, Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Osama bin Laden, you know, public enemy number one, had shown up on TV in an interview saying, you know, in my former way of life, I was a wretched person. But then God revealed himself to me, and now I'm really sorry, and now I want to live for Christ. That would get huge TV ratings. Now, we'd be skeptical at first. I know that. But that would get huge ratings because we love those kind of stories. Well, that's why Paul's story is spreading all over. But I think it's really important for us to realize not all testimonies look the same. Because your story is different from my story, which is different from the story of the person sitting next to you, which is different from Paul's story. We're not all shaped by the same mold, and that's okay. It's actually wonderful. But here's what is the same for everybody who's placed their faith in Jesus. It goes back to that pleasure God has and at some point in time, revealing his son to us. So it truly doesn't matter what your life looked like before you met Jesus. For some of you, you have that testimony like I do, where there was a lot of baggage there. That's okay. But I guarantee there are other people in this room who have a different story. And they'd say, well, you know, before I met Jesus, I used to just fill my life with religious activities. I went to church all the time. Might even have served on a church board. I, I knew what to say and do, but I didn't know Jesus. But then, 
It pleased God to reveal himself to me. And now I have a relationship with Jesus. It's by grace through faith. Somebody here has that testimony. There's probably somebody here tonight who has that testimony where they just went to church a couple times a year. They went every Christmas and Easter. That was it. You hear the story about the guy who only went to church on Christmas and Easter? One year he was walking out after the Easter service and the pastor was standing out there shaking hands and, and he saw this guy and he knew he only saw him a couple times a year. And so he made a point to go over and shake his hand and he said, hey, I'm so excited you're here today, but I really want you to come and be part of what we're doing. I want you to be part of the Lord's army. And the guy said, well, I am part of the Lord's army. And the pastor said, well, I only see you here at Christmas and Easter. And the guy leaned in and he said, I'm in the secret service. What, what if that's part of your testimony? What if you were a guy who only went to church a couple times a year? And if George Barna had walked up to you to do a survey and said, hey, are you a Christian? You would have said, well, sure. But you had no idea who Jesus was. Showed no evidence of the fruit of Spirit in your life. But then somehow, it pleased God to reveal himself to you. That might be your testimony. If we're Christ followers, it really doesn't matter what our testimony looks like. It's our testimony. My good friend Cliff Ford, he was telling me about a friend of his who's a pastor in town. And he said when he shares his testimony, he makes sure that people understand not everybody has a Damascus Road experience. Not everybody has that deal where God knocks you on your tail and blinds you and then draws you to himself to get your attention. He said instead, a lot of people have Emmaus Road experiences. You recall that encounter in Luke chapter 24 where the resurrected Jesus appears to a couple guys who are walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus? And somehow, I don't get this, Jesus disguises himself. And he plays dumb to what's going on in world news. But he ends up walking the whole seven miles of the journey with these guys. And beginning with Moses, Jesus tells the story of the Bible to these two guys. I want to be one of those two guys. What an experience that would be. And when they reach their destination, Jesus acts like he's going to keep on traveling. And they say, no, no, come in, rest, and eat with us. And so he does. And Jesus takes the bread and he prays for it and then he breaks it and he gives it to these two guys and then they recognize him. And here's what they say in verse 32 of Luke 24. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? For some folks here, our testimony is more like that. We don't have to be blinded and sucked away from these horrible things that we're doing but it still pleased God just as much to reveal himself to us in a different way. Maybe it was a much more subtle way. Because of grace, that's the offer that's on the table. The offer we talked about last week of having a story that includes in my former way of life, I used to be this way. Maybe it's a Damascus road for you. Maybe it's an Emmaus road. It really doesn't matter. Regardless of how you arrived here today, you could leave with a former way of life by just accepting the gift of God's grace. And Paul closes in verse 24 by mentioning that the people who had heard his story, heard about his former way of life, but now knew that he was preaching the gospel of grace, he says they were glorifying God because of me. Now this is one of those things that maybe sounds a little funny, but I don't think it comes out in our English translation exactly how Paul meant it. But if you've read a bunch of what Paul's written in the Bible, then you know Paul sometimes has a little trouble with the boasting. <laughs> Later in this letter, in chapter 6 and verse 14, he writes, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now normally the kind of guy who would write that 
is the kind of guy who has a slight boasting problem. If you've referred to yourself before as a Hebrew of Hebrews, you'd write that. But here in verse 24, what Paul is clearly saying is, God gets the glory because of his changed life. Because Paul has this three-part testimony, I was this bad guy in my former manner of life, but then Jesus. And now I'm doing this ministry, and people are saying, isn't that the guy who used to persecute Christians? Now he's preaching about grace? Before, Paul was zealous in a bad way. Well, then he met Jesus. Now he lives this radically changed life. And that's easy enough to see because I guarantee in our lives, we praise God for people who've had a huge impact in our lives. I praise God for my grandfather, Harry Rapp. If you've been in this church for a long time, you'd know him. He passed away many years. But, but I, I praise God for him because of how he poured into my life. I guarantee I would not be the kind of person I am today without his influence. But I don't praise Harry Rapp. I glorify God because of Harry Rapp. That's totally different. God's the one who's worthy of our praise. So that's Paul's testimony. He had this Damascus Road experience. Maybe we've had that or an Emmaus Road experience. It doesn't matter. My prayer is that after this, we're all going to be challenged to use our testimony. We'll be challenged to use the story of how God has drawn us to himself to explain why we believe what we believe. We'll be able to point to having lives that have been radically changed. We'll be able to point to our former way of life and that baggage. Or maybe we'll be able to point to how we used to say we had a relationship with God, but we really didn't, and then it pleased God to reveal himself to us. Or we can even say, hey, I just went to church a couple times a year. I didn't know anything about Jesus. But then it pleased God to reveal himself to me. However it is, that's our testimony. Grace puts the offer on the table. We still have to respond and accept the gift. We're going to close by worshiping together in song. And I've got a couple of announcements I want to make. First, let me pray for our time. Father God, what a joy to tell our story. God, give us opportunities. Put us in places where we can tell amazing stories about you, where you get all the praise and you get all the glory. Where we can say, hey, in my former way of life, I used to be like this, but then I met Jesus. And it pleased God to reveal himself to me. And now I live this different life. And God, we pray you would get every bit of the glory because you are so worthy. Thank you for this time to come together to open your word. We love you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.